So far in our series, we've explored where the consumer of the future will shop and which consumers in particular retailers will be aiming to connect with. But no survey of the future of retail would be complete without also asking, how will consumers buy? What platforms and payment technologies will prevail? What new social and legal challenges will they present? And how will such purchase methods potentially alter our consumer behavior and at the same time, the marketing calculus of the brands we patronize? I'm Doug Stevens, founder of Retail Profit. And in this second season of Retail Reborn, the Business of Fashion's podcast series on the fast-changing retail industry presented by Brookfield Properties, we're exploring the consumer of the future. Who are they? And how are their economic, technological, and social realities shaping new behaviors and relationships within retail? All crucial questions, particularly in the face of the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. It's a retail world composed of both new platforms and new payment methods, all of which are keeping consumer brands on their toes. Not the least of these frontiers for brands and retailers is the world of gaming. While some might view gaming as a distraction from life and an escape from social engagement, others see it as a larger aspect of how and where we'll spend our time and point to the fact that gaming is also about legitimate social relationships. In fact, research has shown that friendships fostered and maintained on live gaming platforms are no less real or meaningful than those formed in the real world. Something that's playing out today with billions of consumers spending increasing amounts of both time and money on and in gamified experiences. So how big a deal is it? The gaming market is bigger than the movies and the sports markets combined in North America. And uh, globally, it's the same story. You know, there are over 2.7 billion gamers globally. That's like one person in every three people. Currently, according to some of our peers in the industry, the estimated gaming market size is more than $300 billion. Winston Ma is an investor, attorney, and the author of The Digital War, How China's Tech Power Shapes the Future of AI, Blockchain, and Cyberspace. He's a former managing director and head of the North America Office for China Investment Corporation and an adjunct professor in the global digital economy at NYU Law. And global statistics on gaming support his views. In fact, in its State of Fashion 2022 report, the business of fashion shares that 81% of Gen Z reported playing video games in the last month, spending over seven hours per week on average. And beyond gaming consoles and PCs, it's important to recognize that gaming is more broadly engaged in, with 80% of smartphone users engaging in games on their device. So gaming is the front line of media. Another way to look at it is in many areas, we will see gaming first, right? As, as Comparing to a few years ago, we will say mobile first, which means in order to get to the attention of consumers, especially the young generation consumers, you have to create the interface in the mobile context so that they can buy anytime. And now the latest is gamification of everything, uh, which means on top of mobile first, you want to add gaming as the main media format. 
that means uh, mostly about interactive participation by the users. And the gaming is sort of the new cutting edge interface for users to express themselves and to interact with uh, other people. And most importantly, uh, form a social network uh, with like-minded people. And this new social network is super important for consumer brands, companies, and their products. If there's any doubt that these channels are a conduit for revenue, in May of 2020, Epic Games reported that it had generated over $1 billion in microtransaction sales from the mobile version of its Fortnite game alone, consisting of in-game upgrades, costumes, and player capabilities. In 2021, game maker Activision Blizzard, with a reported audience size of 370 million players worldwide, reported that 61% of its total revenue came from in-game purchases. Seeing the potential, brands across the value spectrum have been embracing the world of gaming, from Nike's eponymous new Nike Land gaming experience in Roblox to Balenciaga's creation of Afterworld, the Age of Tomorrow in late 2020, a video game developed by Epic Games to showcase Balenciaga's autumn-winter 2021 collection, a project that later spurred a collaboration between the brand and Epic's game Fortnite where players could dress their characters in Balenciaga fashions. Outside of luxury, some brands have taken a gaming light approach. Fast fashion retailer Shein, for example, lets visitors spin a wheel for a coupon prior to payment, a subtle but nonetheless gamified element of the shopping experience. This potential melding together of gaming and commerce points to a broader trend that was observed prior to the pandemic and one that's been playing out even more overtly during the pandemic, that being the collapsing together of entertainment and commerce in a way that we have never seen before. Both gaming and live streaming are part of a broader move toward what I call ambient retail, a state where retail is everywhere, woven into every social or entertainment experience an evolution that may spell the end of the centralized and search-driven web shopping convention we've lived with for the past 30 years. But does every product require an engaged, visceral, or emotionally charged experience? It's a question I hear often, and clearly the answer is no. In fact, about 80% of the things we purchase on a daily or weekly basis are entirely routine replenishment purchases made with little pleasure or forethought. And it's this routine portion of our spending that brands and retailers are working to eliminate or automate completely, leading us toward what I call the replenishment economy. In 2014, for example, Amazon filed for a patent for something called anticipatory shipping, essentially positing the idea that the company at some juncture could begin shipping products to consumers before receiving an order, perhaps before the consumer even recognized the need for the product. At the time, many saw this notion as a piece of science fiction. However, by as early as 2017, Chinese e-commerce marketplace JD.com was to an extent already doing it. Using advanced data analytics, the company was able to determine that wherever data analysis showed a surge in clicks for a particular product in a given market, it would almost inevitably result in orders for that product amounting to 10% of the clicks. But that wasn't all. 
They also realized that on average, these orders followed the click surge by 2.7 days. With that insight, the brand began systematically monitoring click surges and dispatching products accordingly within the 2.7 day timeframe. It was this key insight that enabled JD.com to service the vast geography of China with same-day shipping, feat many felt was impossible. This ever-increasing capacity to parse data, to not simply respond to, but anticipate consumer needs is pointing to a future where, with our permission, many products may just simply come to us without intervention or much conscious consideration on our part. Today, some of this routine replenishment is handled via subscription formats. In the US alone, one 2019 study found 31% of millennials currently subscribe to subscription boxes. In the UK, 32% of millennials are currently subscribers to at least one service. From avocados to underwear, we're increasingly hitting subscribe for the myriad of routine goods we need. But we're now approaching a point where technology may even further alleviate the need to consciously shop for replenishment items. In fact, both Walmart in 2017 and Amazon more recently have hinted at plans to introduce connected devices and appliances into their customers' homes to act as smart replenishment points essentially allowing customers to take what they like and have reorders automatically generated, all the while becoming more predictive about individual user needs and preferences. So while on the one hand, the consumer of the future will increasingly be shopping from within social entertainment and leisure experiences, a separate set of technologies is simultaneously working to end the need to shop for some products at all. Ultimately, the question though is, how will we pay for these things, regardless of where they're coming from? What methods of payment and currency will the consumer of the future use? Which brings us, perhaps unsurprisingly, to the elephant in the payment space, cryptocurrency. Let me try my best to summarize it, right? So first, you know, the crypto concept starts with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is one of the cryptos and the first crypto. Bitcoin came into play because on the Bitcoin blockchain, the participants can compete to solve mathematic problems to win the reward, which is the Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin is the direct result of the Bitcoin blockchain, right? And the Bitcoin has value. So today we see there is a trillion dollar plus market for Bitcoin. Key to understanding cryptocurrency are the three words digital, encrypted and decentralized. Cryptocurrencies are fundamentally produced, acquired, held and spent digitally. Transactions are encrypted so that while attributable to parties in a transaction via a digital identifier, the real world identities of those parties need not be disclosed. And finally, cryptocurrencies are decentralized in the sense that no one party or parties controls, regulates or owns the network they are transacted on. Rather, a decentralized network of computers is used to verify and log transactions or blocks as they happen, offering what many see as a system that is more trustable from a data standpoint, while also being less vulnerable to corruption or hacking. And why has Bitcoin attracted so much attention? 
In 2010, the price of one Bitcoin hovered below the $30 mark. At its peak in 2021, the price soared to more than $60,000, a value based on little more than the speculative activity of investors driving up the market. Prone to violent ups and downs, some speculate that Bitcoin will soon top $100,000 per coin. Others anticipate a very different future where the currency sinks to become worthless. As a result of this volatility, the appetite for investment in crypto products tends to decline with age. A 2021 study found that almost half of millennials were comfortable investing in cryptocurrency, compared to 37% of Gen X and 22% of boomers. This goes a long way to explaining why more than half of millennial millionaires have at least 50% of their wealth in crypto, and nearly a third have at least three quarters of their wealth in Bitcoin. And why, according to a 2021 report from Business Insider, almost 60% of Gen Z believe wealth is achievable through investments in cryptocurrency. While some might question these sorts of all-in positions on such a speculative asset, it's the zeal around crypto, particularly by young consumers, that's driven the total market value of all cryptocurrencies to $2 trillion. For retailers, the appeal is largely pragmatic and economic. Transactions involving cryptocurrency avoid costs that retailers are constantly battling against, namely escalating payment processing charges and credit card fees. The peer-to-peer -peer nature of crypto, along with the decentralized essence of blockchain, at least in theory, require no such middlemen, each of which today add cost and complexity to transactions, costs which usually get passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices. But as Ma points out, while crypto may indeed circumvent some of these costs, the foundational principles that cryptocurrencies have been built on also pose some practical challenges, especially for merchants with high volumes of transactions. Yeah, I would say it is a practical challenge because this relates to the famous impossible triangle about relating to a blockchain, the decentralization, data security, and transactional scalability. These three things are the impossible triangle. What I mean by that is you know, as you describe in a blockchain context, if it's decentralized, that means every transaction is to be verified by all the participants of the blockchain, right? Uh, now, the second point is the more institutions, the more players, you know, could be institutions or individual users, right? Uh, the more nodes of the blockchain has, the more decentralized it, it is and the more secure it is because if there's one particular player has more than 51% of the voting power of the blockchain, then essentially that guy can trump everyone. Now, the third aspect is, you know, if you have a blockchain that is decentralized and it has many, many nodes, so it is very secure, then every verification of every transaction will take a long time on the chain. You need the whole computer system to work together to verify that single transaction by a large number of players in a very decentralized setup, which means a single payment can take minutes or even hours, not milliseconds to complete, which means the transaction process is very difficult and the scalability of the transaction very difficult. And the issues with crypto don't end there. 
As Time Magazine recently pointed out, because there is no centralized authority that manages Bitcoin, transactions cannot be reversed and mistakes cannot be rectified. Bitcoin balances that are stored in digital wallets can be lost forever if users forget or misplace their passwords. Moreover, the process by which transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain are validated requires enormous computing power and energy with terrible environmental consequences. For these reasons and others, acceptance of cryptocurrency by both governments and private enterprise has been tentative at best. Only one country, El Salvador, has declared Bitcoin an official currency, seeing it as a means of addressing a population that includes many consumers who are unbanked and without means of credit. Meanwhile, China has shut down all cryptocurrency activity completely, choosing instead to create its own domestic digital currency. Governments can issue their own sovereign digital currencies, blockchain-like infrastructure. So, for example, China is leading this research, right? China is setting up blockchain-like technology to issue the official digital currency of the country. The big difference from the crypto is in the crypto world, the crypto may have price, but there's no fixed price. There's a trading market for it. For the sovereign digital currency, it is just the digital form of the existing sovereign currency. So it is just one for one, right? So in Chinese yuan, the digital yuan is still the same value. And if down the road, U.S. government will issue a sovereign digital dollar, then the dollar is just equal to the same paper dollar. From a retail standpoint, while more retailers are slowly nodding in their acceptance of cryptocurrency for purchases, it appears most view it as more of a brand strategy, using crypto as a means of gaining the attention of and fostering a connection to a younger, higher net worth consumer class. Ultimately, we may discover, as is often the case with technology, that a first mover like Bitcoin becomes a mere stepping stone to more mainstream forms of digital currency, much the way iTunes, Spotify, and others stood on the shoulders of Napster. It is entirely likely that emerging forms of cryptocurrency will do the same, offering less volatility of value, wider acceptance and an acceptable level of regulatory safeguards for consumers. For consumers at large, research suggests that awareness of an investment in cryptocurrency has gathered momentum in a short period of time, with Pew Research noting that almost 90% of consumers have heard of Bitcoin and 16% have invested in it, a sharp increase from 2015 where only 48% had heard of Bitcoin and a mere 1% had it in their portfolio. Today's crypto market is largely comprised of two major players and dozens of also-rans. Bitcoin enjoys the lion's share of approximately 40%, while competitor Ethereum holds roughly a 20% share. But to quote one analyst, comparing the two is like comparing gold to electricity. In fact, for retailers, cryptocurrency might be a mere distraction from the more valuable technology it operates on, blockchain. Being Bitcoin, the first blockchain network in the world and the breakthrough technology, pretty much everything, and some people might dispute that, but pretty much everything that you can do in Bitcoin is just transact with Bitcoins. You can send transactions back and forward. You can potentially put a, a message in the transaction, but that's pretty much it, which is amazing. But it's um, the world is more than just transacting value. 
Marjorie Hernandez de Vogelsteller is co-founder of Luxo, a blockchain infrastructure providing a series of standards and solutions for physical and digital consumer goods. I asked her what it was that drew her to the crypto market. As a person who was born in Venezuela and grew up in Venezuela, I also understand the risks and the dangers of institutions controlling wealth and you know how difficult can it be when those institutions become corrupt. So when the premise of technology uh, really offering an alternative to institutions and it starts to feel like a natural progression from when we had in terms of how we allocate trust and who received that trust from being the church, the state institutions, now we have technology that we can trust. Seemed like a very, very attractive proposition. And, and I decided to take all of the things that I'm passionate about and put it all together. However, she says, the debate over cryptocurrency may be missing the point entirely. Ethereum, she says, is the true breakthrough. And that's what Ethereum was so groundbreaking because he introduced the notion of smart contracts. And basically what he's saying is that we have now this blockchain network that allows us to execute smart contracts. And smart contracts is nothing but small little programs that run, they can be executed within a blockchain network. And basically those little programs can do things. So pretty much anything that we can translate into computer language, smart contracts can do. So all of the sudden we go from just being able to transact like we do in Bitcoin, to being able to create business logics and to build different kinds of applications and implementations that are more complex than just transactions within the Ethereum ecosystem. But while such technologies hold significant promise and utility, they also require enormous amounts of energy, placing significant toll on the environment. Because the nature of crypto mining inherently requires using massive amounts of computing power to solve complex problems, referred to as proof of work which, once solved, allow participants to log transactions or blocks, and in doing so, mine crypto coins. But it's this escalating power that comprises a significant carbon footprint, and one that Hernandez de Vogelsteller and her partner set out immediately to mitigate by employing instead a proof-of-stake protocol. Proof-of-work does offer fantastic levels of decentralization. But on that process of that race, all of these mining farms start appearing and then all of the the energy costs and and the energy consumption start going up. So that's something that we understand is not sustainable and it is not the way of the future, right? If we're building the future, we should build it fundamentally on better values. So proof of stake, what it's allowed is it doesn't matter how powerful, how big your computer is, as long as you can put tokens at stake, right? So all of the sudden computing power is not the key to mining that next token. The key now is to have uh, something to put at stake. So that will have a tremendous impact in terms of energy consumption because it's two completely different systems. So how quickly does Hernandez de Vogelsteller believe it will take for things like cryptocurrency and blockchain-based transactions to be everyday aspects of our lives? I think the beautiful thing is we know with digital technologies, things get faster and faster. So I think in terms of speed, we might be doubling down in speed every day. So I think it might be, you know, it might be something like two years. It might be less than that, or it might be five years, you know, but I think it's not that far of a future. And you said very rightfully so that one of the biggest challenges, obviously, one is the quality and the fidelity that we expect as humans, which the real world looks very high fidelity and very beautiful. How can we have that? same level of experience when we have a digital asset. 
It's this question of experience that Hernandez de Vogelsteller is working to answer through her other digital venture, a fashion NFT marketplace called The Dematerialized. There, she and partner Karina Grant offer unique digital apparel items that buyers can own with their purchase registered on a blockchain, collect and wear virtually, display using augmented reality, and trade with others. The jury remains out on whether such experiences will be enough to sustain the wave of NFT purchase activity that we've seen over the course of the pandemic. But as with any new technological advancement, these new currencies and payment platforms prompt a raft of social, economic, and legal hurdles that both private and public organizations have to think through, with one set of technologies in particular proving a social and legal lightning rod. It's a science known as biometrics, recognizing individuals based on their physical or behavioral characteristics. The structure of the face, the geometrics of the hand, the ridges of a fingerprint, the patterns in an iris. From facial and iris recognition through to fingerprint and even heart rhythm analysis, payment companies are working to both simplify and secure payment practices by using our unique physical identifiers. However, such technologies raise significant issues, even in places like China, where issues of privacy are viewed quite differently than in the West. Given his knowledge of both Eastern and Western markets, I wondered if biometric payment was something Winston Ma sees as becoming a bigger part of our future. The quick answer is I think biometric payment would be limited because the privacy concern is rising everywhere, you know, not only in the U.S., Europe, but also in China. Very quick example, right? If biometric, your, your face, you know, if your face data is leaked, it's very hard to change your face, right? So it become a privacy issue forever. And these days, users recognize two things. One, data is valuable, right? So they do not want to give up the data for free. At the same time, they also recognize data is dangerous, right? If there's a security breach, you know, then, then the rest of your life is hunted. So I think there's a global push, not only from the government side, but also from the user's side to limit the usage of biometric payment out of legitimate privacy concerns. As it applies to facial recognition, Ma is quite correct. A 2019 study concluded that consumers were largely split on the use of facial recognition. However, what they learned was that their discomfort seemed to have more to do with who was using the technology than the technology itself. For example, while 36% of consumers trust technology companies with facial recognition, only 18% say they'd trust advertisers with the same technology. Even in China, where facial recognition had enjoyed a heyday proliferating in hotels, shopping malls, stores, and other commercial environments, government policy has recently shifted, cracking down on companies and marketers in an effort to stem instances of privacy abuse. Before capturing facial data, marketers must now request consumer permission and employ stricter measures of security with the data that's captured. But issues with facial recognition alone may not be reason to disqualify all forms of biometric payment from our future. In the same study, 74% of consumers across 14 countries indicated that they are comfortable with biometric payment technology using their fingerprints, something that, for anyone using a smartphone today, would be commonplace. 
And now a word from Adam Tritt, the Chief Development Officer of our sponsor, Brookfield Properties, sharing his insights on retail from a real estate perspective. As we think about the future of the assets, as we think about long-term hold assets and how to position those for the future, technology has really sped up the pace of change in our industry. It's always been there. We're now responding much more quickly to shifting consumer demands, to shifting expectations on the built environment. It's our role and our commitment to continue to provide those expectations to our consumers when they visit our properties. It's safe to say that as technology moves ever more quickly, more such points of intersection between what's possible and what's legal or ethical will arise. It's an intersection Gina Bibby spends most of her time at. Gina Bibby is a globally recognized legal mind when it comes to technology and the law. She's a partner at Withers Worldwide, where she focuses on fashion technology. According to Bibby, the once relatively staid and conservative payment market is now witnessing a flood of once fringe technologies like cryptocurrency enter the mainstream. There are numerous crypto payment startups building technologies and efficiencies for supporting crypto as a currency for making payments. Some of these include Simplex, Greenbox, POS, Utrust. Async, Flexa, Connext, the list just goes on and on. So startup companies are investing serious capital in figuring out this crypto payment mechanism. The other player in this space recently, beginning in November of 2020, is the payment giant PayPal. So PayPal announced in November of 2020 that it was now possible for US-based customers to buy, hold, and sell cryptocurrencies on its platform. It recently expanded that offering to international markets and to its Venmo payment app. It also launched a feature recently that would allow US consumers to check out using their cryptocurrency with any PayPal merchant. And then there's Shopify. So Shopify has recently partnered with a cryptocurrency exchange called Binance. And it will allow Shopify to provide a mechanism for crypto payments. The general consensus among analysts is that crypto holds potential for faster, less expensive payment systems, especially in underserved markets. So what the blockchain does and what cryptocurrency does and even NFTs, it's a democratization, right? And so if you look at underserved communities, typically what you have are individuals with no credit history, no relationship with banks, no ability to get a bank account, no ability to get a credit card. They may also live in rural areas where they don't have access to these banking institutions and other financial institutions. And then you have a segment of the population that has been historically discriminated against by financial institutions. 
And so then what you have with the blockchain is you remove all of those barriers to entry because I can be an individual with no credit history and no credit card and I can still transact with brands and retailers online. I don't have to have a credit card, right? And so this is, as I see it at least, is a win-win for retailers, brands, and it's a win-win for consumers. But as she points out, it's also important to understand the potential risks with blockchain-based assets. So I think in a lot of ways, blockchain democratizes ownership and a number of other things. NFTs cannot exist absent blockchain. Blockchain can exist absent NFTs. Smart contracts cannot exist absent blockchain. Cryptocurrency cannot exist absent blockchain, but blockchain can exist absent cryptocurrency. And so what this means is that there's significant, I mean, blockchain is the super highway of the virtual world is how I like to see it. And there are all different types of cars that travel on that highway by way of uh, comparison. You have the NFTs and the cryptocurrencies and the smart contracts. And so, you know, what blockchain does for us is it really provides a mechanism through which to engage in all of these different technologies and it provides efficiencies, right? So the blockchain is decentralized at the present moment. It's not regulated by a governmental authority. It's cheaper. You know, the list goes on as to the benefits of blockchain and anything that you transact on the blockchain, right? However, she's also quick to note that as much as blockchain may allay some concerns around privacy and security, they too are by no means risk-free. For example, it does make it possible to own digital things. It also complicates the ownership of digital things because those digital things would not exist but for blockchain. So if you pull, let's say, for example, I own an NFT. Well, if the blockchain on which that NFT operates ceases to exist, do I really own an NFT? Therein lies the problem. Good question, particularly when some are spending thousands, even millions, on everything from virtual art and fashion to real estate. But ownership issues in the virtual space, says Bibi, don't end there. Another really good example in the context of virtual fashion, which I find myself educating people on all the time, when you're talking about a brand or a designer creating a virtual piece of fashion, typically what you have to do, unless that brand has in-house engineers or the designer itself is of the engineering ilk, you have to create software code to manifest that piece of virtual fashion or even that NFT. Well, by way of example, under U.S. copyright laws, software is copyright protectable. So if I, as an engineer, if I write the software, I have ownership rights in the software, right? So if I write the software for your NFT 
or if I write the software for your virtual piece of fashion to make it come to life, I have rights in that digital asset. So what people need to realize, both brands, companies, and designers, is that when you are engaging these third-party engineers, IT professionals, to realize your digital asset, you have to put contracts in place that say, yes, you're writing the code for me, but you don't have an ownership right in the end product. And that is so often overlooked, you would be shocked. So how do we solve that? From a legal standpoint, she says, we're still in the Wild West stages with legal experts racing to catch up. Well, you know, technology moves at a pace that most other things don't. And the law has to catch up with technology. Practical ways in which we interact with technology have to be vetted. And I think, Doug, that we don't have the answers right now, if I'm being honest. You know, we just don't have the legal and practical constructs to really figure out how this is all going to work in the end. Despite these challenges, she's confident that we'll overcome them en route to this very different looking consumer future. I like to be an optimist and I really do believe in technology. And I do think that eventually we will get to a place where we have untangled the morass of issues around operating in this virtual context with respect to all of the things that we've spoken about today. I do think we will get there. Will the road be an easy one? I don't think so, because this is a new frontier. A new frontier that is both exhilarating and daunting. Much like the early days of Napster, MySpace, and Skype, a time where a new army of disruptors pointed toward a future that few could fully imagine at the time. Will Bitcoin go down in history as the Napster of cryptocurrency? It's possible. But the better question is, what will the iTunes era of cryptocurrency and blockchain look like? In the same sense, how will the fully evolved incarnations of gaming, live streaming, and biometric payment look different from their ancestors of today? One thing seems certain. The very essence of how we buy things is set to change more significantly in the next 10 years than it has in the previous 100. Subscribe to the Retail Reborn podcast wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss an episode of Retail Reborn Season 2, presented by Brookfield Properties. Until next time, I'm Doug Stevens.